0: Good morning, Sir Repter. I uh, <clears throat> discovered, Zolani uh, phoned me a week before last and said, uh, Would I please preach? I said, Okay, I'm free, I can do it. And then I was listening to his message. Uh, he, he told me he was doing Romans 12. So I was listening to his message on Wednesday afternoon and I discovered that I'm doing. Romans 11. <laughs> Thank you. But you can't do Romans 11 on its own. To understand Romans 11, you have to do 10 and 9, because actually 9, 10, and 11 are, are one. They're a unit, if you like. But to understand those, you have to really understand what Paul is getting at in Romans as a whole. What is the major theme that's running through the whole of Romans? In a sense, why or what was the purpose behind the writing of Romans? But to really appreciate that, you have to go even further back. Oh, sorry, I've got to stand between these things here. Um, You've got to go even further back to Genesis. Where we see God says, let us make man in our likeness and in our image, or in our image and our likeness. And we are there given The purpose of our creation, that we may rule on earth. That is our purpose. That is why God created us and put us on this little planet. To rule on earth, to bring the kingdom. You remember Jesus teaching us to pray? The very first thing we were to ask for in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. And where does that begin? In you and me. That's why we were put on earth. And just as an aside, it kind of lends to the whole story. That was chapter 1, Genesis 1. In chapter 2, we have the the formation of man, God taking some dust and he shapes the man and then he breathes into the nostrils of Adam and he becomes a living soul. Now when God breathes, what does God breathe? But his own spirit. And it is that spirit that, if you like, energizes us, gives us life, animates us. It's the animating energy in each and every one of us, God's breath. As the Jews say, it's the uncreated part of man. But then the next chapter, three, Adam and Eve decide that they want to go in a different direction. When God created the entire universe, it's held together by all the laws that he instituted, uh, most of them we don't even know. We know a few of them. One of them is gravity, for example. Without gravity, there wouldn't be life. If Without gravity, there wouldn't be a planet. There wouldn't be anything. So there are many of these laws that God introduced. And he made a perfect universe that holds together by these various laws that he has instituted. Adam and Eve come along, they want a different reality. God's reality is ultimate reality, absolute reality. But they want a different reality, a reality that revolves around them. This is what the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. It's restructuring good and evil not around God, but around me. What is good to me? What is evil to me? But of course, what is good to you and what is evil to you may be different. And what is good to you? And, and so what do we have? A clash. Because our good and evil don't always concur. It's a delusional reality that we live in. We have a little concept of our own world. And how often, and forgive me for this, but how often don't we invite God into our world? Come and fix up my mess. Help me in my situation, which of course I'm the cause of in the first place. But what does the Lord say? If you go to uh, Genesis 12, when he calls Abram, the first, what does he do? Leave your people, your nation. Leave your clan. Slobo. I don't know if that's Zulu. It's closer. Slobo. Leave your father's household. Leave, leave, leave. Leave behind you all that that sense of reality that has been given to you by those who went before. Leave it and come and I will take you to the promised land. Another world altogether. Ultimate reality. God is gracious he really, really is gracious. He meets us where we are. That's where it starts with, well, with Abram. Mankind has rebelled and gone off. He meets Abram. He says, come. And then you know the entire story all the way through uh, with Israel <clears throat> and they becoming the, the chosen vehicle through whom God was going to reveal himself to the world and all of that. All the way through, what is God doing? He's leading us into His righteousness. And this is the story, in a sense, of the entire Bible. What is God's righteousness? What is righteousness? Please understand, righteousness is not something we merely do. Do the right thing here, do the right that's yeah, well, it's good to do the right thing, of course. But it's not in our doing, it's in our being. It's not just do a few good things, it's be right. By being completely aligned with the Lord. I think I wrote something down here. Righteousness is where our heartbeat is in sync with God's heart. And we reflect his nature. And therefore, our choices are God's choices being enacted in and through us. Remember in uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you to will and to do. Righteousness is living from the inner center of God's doing in you. It is not, in the Old Testament, it was in the Old Testament, conforming to a given pattern. So you had to go to, you know, so many sacrifices, go to Jerusalem, et cetera, et cetera. And if you do all that, well, then you were considered righteous. But what does Jesus do? He comes along and he says, except your righteousness be greater than that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, can you imagine the surprise of the people? The Pharisees were held in high regard. They were the most righteous people in Israel. How can you be more righteous than the most righteous? And the point here, and Jesus clarifies it without actually explaining it, but he clarifies it with all that he adds to this. You go and read uh, Romans 5, 6, and – not Romans, I beg your pardon – Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, and you'll see what he says there. But, you know, what he's getting at is that the Pharisees lived by an external set of rules and regulations. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that – And then you're fine. Jesus says, no, you're not fine. It's not external to yourself. It's internal. It's a heart situation. He gave illustrations. If you look at a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. If you're angry with your brother, You're a murderer in your heart. It's the life we live within. Righteousness is not just what we do outside. And I think I've said this here before, if I could take a magic wand and just wave it over your head and capture all the thoughts, all the images, all the fantasies that you've entertained over the last six to eight weeks and then throw it up there for everybody to see as a living movie so that they could see what was going on in the inside here? How many would permit me to do that? How many would happily have all that thrown up there for everyone to see? The great problem, we have been trained from that high to live externally. We put on masks. We disguise, we camouflage what's going on on the inside. Lord forbid that anybody should ever see it. Is this the righteousness to which we are called? No. It is the internalization of it. It has to be from within. It's not just what we do. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. <coughs> is there water in this thing? No. May I ask somebody for a glass of water? Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Sorry. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The righteousness of God. The the NIV, uh, I think, says something. It implies that it's the righteousness that God gives out. But the Greek specifically says it is the righteousness. Oh, thank you. It is God's righteousness that we are to enter into. Now, I've got, if, if, if you've got one of those... um Study Bibles, the NIV Study Bible, you'll find that at the beginning of each of the books in the Bible, they'll give you a breakdown of what the book or what's entailed in it. And different theologians will give, will give different breakdowns. Um, just in looking at Romans when we first started, I just put a little list. This, this is just for me. And this is merely my own. And That's all I'm sharing with you this morning is my own picture, quite honestly. Um, <clears throat> Here's my breakdown of Romans, just very quickly. Um, uh, To to begin with, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 is merely his introduction. Thereafter, the second part, righteousness, man's great need. And here we look, Paul looks at the human condition, sin. I mean, it was Leslie who said, you emphasized the fact the other day, a couple of weeks ago you were preaching. And one of the things you emphasized is we are sinners. What does that actually mean? What what is a sinner? Yeah, shout it out. Uh, well, that's the consequence of sin, yeah. But what is sin? The, the problem tends to be that we mark off parts of our conduct and say, well, that's sin. But this, no, no, this isn't sin. And of course, it differs from person to person because we'll justify some of the things that others will say, that's sin. You know, uh, one of them, for example, smoking. If I smoke, is that sin? If I smoke, will I go to hell? And someone once said, no, you'll smell like hell. Um, But you see, so for some it's sin, and for others, it's not. They'll justify it. Sin again, just like righteousness It's not merely an external thing. It's internal. It is where we live from an entirely different picture of reality. We have our own paradigm of reality, a fictitious reality. And yes, we may incorporate, you know, well, well, the Bible says I have to do this, so I'll just Bring this into my little fictitious picture of reality and I'll incorporate that and, and I'll say a prayer here and there and, and I and I'll read my Bible every day and, and we've missed it. Sin is living from the wrong paradigm completely. Even if you try to do the right things, you're doing them for the wrong reason. If we're going to become righteous, which obviously means being rid of sin, we have to step out of our own delusional picture of reality and step into That picture, which is God's ultimate reality, and this is the story you'll find in Romans. Good Lord. Do I have to? It's already half past ten. Do I have to stop now? (laughs) You're still there. Okay. That was was just number two. And number three, righteousness, God's great gift. And it is, it is by grace. It is not our own attainment. It is not something that you work and strive to achieve because I've done this, I've done that, I've No. Step out of your picture and step into God's picture. So that you begin to see things as God sees things and approach life as God approaches life, and guess what? You're righteous. Your paradigm changes. Oh, yes, you've heard the term paradigm shift. Okay. That's what it is a complete paradigm shift. Justified. By God's grace. The fourth one. Righteousness. Living it today. Life in the spirit. That's chapter 6 to 8. Now all, all of this, of course, is still, Paul presents it as theory. It's all theoretical. Really. He's building his picture. And then... The fifth one is righteousness in history. And this is uh, chapters nine through to 11, where Paul goes back, uh, and this is very possibly written, it is assumed by those clever fellows called theologians, um, that there was conflict in the church in Rome. There was conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, they they just, it, it was like having, oh, he's gone. Oh, my Zulu friend's gone. It's just having the Kossas and the Zulus in the same room, you know. Conflict. Um, and that, in part, that's the reason, apparently, that he wrote the letter. Well, according to some of these guys, that's the reason he wrote the letter of Romans. And he wants to show them, doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, a Zulu or a Kosser, You're still a sinner. You're still living from the wrong paradigm altogether. Your picture is wrong. And it is only by the grace of God that we can step out of that picture into his picture. All of us, Jew or Gentile alike, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. There isn't an exception. And I know it's not popular, but it's true. Even the newborn baby is a sinner. Oh, it's run away. And people say, but that's so grossly unfair. How can a newborn baby be a sinner? Wow, that's rough. Well, let me put a question to you. How many of you, when you were little, how many of you had parents who had to employ somebody to come and teach you how to be naughty, selfish, and self-centered? Did anybody here require extra lessons on selfishness and self-centeredness? No, I don't see any hands. No, no. No. It was endemic, wasn't it? It was already in us when we were born. Sinners. Where was I? Number five. Number six. Oh, the last one. Righteousness in community. That can be the church. It can be the community, at you know, the larger community in which each of us lives. And, of course, it can be the world as a whole. Our objective is to take the gospel to the world so that, right, that the entire world might enter into the righteousness of God. God and begin to live by that. Imagine the world we would have if everybody lived by that standard. Wouldn't have any of the troubles we have at the moment. In Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old man, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put it on. And of course, and I can only speak from my own experience, obviously, but it would seem to me that the biggest problem in putting on that new man, that righteousness, that righteous man, the biggest problem is getting rid of the other man, that old man. I don't know if I'm the only one that has this problem. But you can tell him to die a thousand times, and the wretch raises his miserable head five minutes later. Ego. It is our biggest enemy by far that false self that we protect and defend all the time. Let go. Let go. Put off that old that you may put on the new. And for me, in my walk with the Lord, it seems to be more about letting go than anything else. Getting rid of. Okay, that was just by way of an introduction. He did say five hours, so it's all right. We've got a long way to go now. All right. No, I'm just going to – I won't. I'll be very quick. Um, you've done I, – I, I, I don't know who preached on Romans 9 and 10. You were 9 and – oh, yes, 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 okay. All right, there were a couple of things here that I just want to touch on. I'm not going to recap what you said. Um, <clears throat> Paul says, he speaks about, you know, uh, I'm, where is this? I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, uh, those of my race, <coughs> excuse me, the people, <coughs> sorry, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. There's are the patriarchs from whom is traced the the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all, forever be praised. But what an illustrious beginning. Wow. And yet they seem to be rejected. Because God says they're going to be saved, and yet he says, but they're not saved. And then Paul says, it's not as though God's word has failed. And this is where this conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles is believed to have existed. That the Gentiles were saying to the Jews, ah, you've been rejected by God. Utter failures, all of you. And they probably said, ah, 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 ah you the Johnny-come-latelys, you know. And this is where Paul now steps in. It's not as though God's word had failed. They weren't all saved. That's true. And this is a very important part of the scripture because what it's dealing with here is the sovereignty of Is God sovereign? Are you sure? Some are not going to commit themselves one way or the other. Play it safe. I don't blame you. Well, if God is sovereign, why is the world in such a mess? If God is sovereign, why are not all the Jews saved? And there's been great theological debate around this, by the way. And still is. It's been going on for centuries. This great debate. And it has split many, many churches. God's sovereignty. I'm going to make a statement just briefly and try and back it up very briefly. This is merely my own opinion. Please understand that. For me, personally, God is sovereign. Absolutely and entirely sovereign. But, here's the problem. God is not in control. That's a fact. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? I think it's in Psalm 115 The highest heavens belong to the Lord, and the earth he has given to man. You'll have to check on that. I think it's one hundred and fifteen. Do you know? Um, You know, but you know the verse. I'm sure you all know that verse. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth He has given to man. Remember where we started. God created man for what purpose? To rule on earth. We have been given the responsibility. To rule on earth. Somewhat cynical thought crosses my mind. Uh, forgive me. Do you know how small earth actually is? Actually, what? even in our solar system, it is minute. It's one millionth of the size of, of the sun. In terms of our galaxy, it's not even a speck of dust. In terms of the cosmos, well, it's nothing. The loss of planet Earth would mean absolutely nothing to our solar system, let alone our galaxy or the universe. But God has given us this little speck of dust. It's our training ground. We're being taught, we're being trained to rule, that we may rule in eternity with him one day. And so the responsibility for what happens on earth, it's a kind of delegated responsibility, if you like, is yours and mine, not God's. It's almost like if I rent a house from Rob, so I sign a lease for a year, it is Rob's house. But for that year, it is my house. He does not have the right legally to just march into that house, does he? He can't just come in willy-nilly any old time he likes. He has to ask my permission. I am in charge, not Rob, in that house for that year. And this is one of the primary reasons for prayer, intercession. God has given us this planet. It's on lease to us. Yes, it belongs to him, of course. Everything belongs to him. It's on lease to us. But he will not just come in and do his own thing. We have to pray, we have to ask him. And this is one of the primary reasons for intercessory prayer. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at? I'm, uh, Unless somebody else come and teach on it in a much bigger way. But the point here is God is sovereign. There's no doubt about it. And in his sovereignty, what he has said is mankind, you are responsible for planet Earth. Anything outside of that is not our responsibility. Another thing he says here it is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel, are Israel. Another important point, which we don't really have time to develop, but just, you you can pick it up and do it for yourselves. If you go back to Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul has already said, "'For he is not a Jew who, who is one outwardly, "'nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh.'" But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter. In the heart. Again, we go back to this inwardness. Being a Christian outwardly only is not being a Christian. Being righteous outwardly is not being righteous. It is inward. It is learning to live from the inner center of the presence of Christ within. This is the source of our actual living. Uh, Let's skip over here. And the remnant will be saved. I'll pick up that in a minute. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they are zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For I bear them witness that they are zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. Uh, gnos- not genosis, gnosis. Genosis is no genosin, knowledge. Um, <clears throat> and in today's world, we tend to confuse information with knowledge. We think of them as the same thing, they're not quite. Um, you know, Peter there went to university once and he studied medicine. And he was, he wrote his exams, he was well-informed. And that is the word gnosan. Paul uses a different word here. He uses the word epigenosin if I can find it. Uh, epigenosan. It is a participatory knowledge. Peter now no longer has a theoretical knowledge. He has a participatory knowledge. In other words, he knows by his own experience, by what he has done, all the operations that he has performed, all the stuff that he's been through all the, these many years. He doesn't just know about it. He knows it. You understand what I'm trying to say here? It's a participatory knowledge. And this is the difference between the Jews that were accepted and the Jews that weren't. There were those who knew God. The rest knew about him. They were informed but didn't know Uh, And then just one last point I want to pick up here quickly too. For being ignorant of God's uh, righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The word Christ is the end of the law. Um, That word is telos. The the, uh, Greek word is telos. And it can mean end, but it can mean the completion or it can mean the fulfillment. Christ is the completion of the law. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, we are, are able, everyone is able to enter into that righteousness because Christ has made it available to us. Skip. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For as Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Well, of course they heard. But how often do we hear with not without hearing? You know, ask these teachers, the children. They teach them, and that, then they give them exams to write at the end of the term, and they just don't do so well. And you wonder why? You know, I've taught them everything. They did they hear? Yeah. They did. It just went in here and out there, didn't it? That's the problem. It didn't lodge inside. So this is the big problem. They heard, of course they heard, but it just didn't lodge inside. They didn't really grasp it. So Paul then picks up, and this is where chapter 11. Okay, now we start. Did God reject his people? And the answer is, by no means. Paul says, because I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abram, of the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And yet it looks like that. And so Paul qualifies this and he says, um, he gives the story uh, of... um, Elijah complaining. You remember Elijah complains about, you know, I'm the last one, take meat also. Uh, And the Lord says, no, I've reserved those 7,000 for myself. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Always it's going to be the remnant. Always it's going to be the small number left behind. Many are called. Few are chosen. And this, too, is a very problematic situation. It's been argued and debated in the church for centuries. And this, too, has split many congregations. This whole thing of election. But Paul is not dealing with, and again, Sorry, let me rephrase that because this is my opinion, and there are so many different opinions here. There are those who believe that or or interpret this part of Scripture as uh, God selecting some people to be saved and others to be lost. I am not that part of that group. I don't see it in that light. I don't think that this is dealing with individual salvation at all. Paul is dealing with a situation that has arisen in the church. Are the Jews rejected? And his answer is no, they're not. And he goes on to, to give his reasons. Because Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. That's not an emotional thing. It's got nothing to do with emotions here. Jacob, I accepted. Esau, I rejected. Before they were born. In other words, God divinely selects for his own good reasons, which he has not made uh, available to us. We don't know why he makes the choices he makes. He's God. He makes those choices because he's God. And Paul tries all sorts of arguments uh, to kind of justify why God does it, but the truth of the matter is we do not know why. And it's not ours to question. God made the choice. That's it. And The point here is Israel is not rejected. And the remnant, those who are true Israelites, are the ones who are Israel. And the same is true, of course, in the church. Those who are true followers of Christ are Christians, are the redeemed in truth. And then let me just, I better call it a day. He goes on and he talks about the branches being grafted into the, you know, broken out and grafted in. The, the, the natural branches broken out and the branches from a wild fig being grafted in. Um, these are all illustrations, obviously, to try and uh, reduce the conflict in the church there. Um, but then he says to the, to the Gentiles, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. And this is where, in fact, if you go to chapter 12, you'll see, um, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. So he, chapter 12 harks back to that. God's mercy to us. As a consequence, he's just given this long, somewhat convoluted argument. And as a consequence of God's mercy, give yourselves over completely to him. In fact, uh, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as the living sacrifice, etc., etc. All right, I want to... And the last thing, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. This too has caused a lot of confusion. If God hardens your heart, what choice do you have? Can you do anything about it? How can, and in fact, Paul uses this. How can, you, how can you say, well, you hardened my heart. Now you blame me for what I'm doing? A little unfair, aren't you? The sun, the sunshine, the warmth of the sunshine that, they, that may soften wax will harden clay. It's the same warmth. The warmth of God's love may soften some hearts and harden others. The more egotistical the heart is, the more it wants to be in control, to be the boss, the more readily it is hardened by God's desire for you to enter into his righteousness. It wants its own righteousness, and I'm sticking to it. God didn't harden the heart in the sense that you will have a hard heart. Not at all. We harden our own hearts in antagonism toward him. It is our doing, not God's. But he sets it in motion simply by loving us. You are the elect. You are the chosen. You are the ones that he has called and who have responded to step into his righteousness and be righteous. And I pray that you will accept that gracious invitation to step into his righteousness and be his person, his people in truth. God bless you.